Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World, the practical voice podcast. Today's guest is Claire Mitchell from VaynerMedia. We get into a deep discussion about conversation design, situation design and sound design. It's a big design talk this week. Um, we do get into some really good details of situational design. I know that there's been the topics being covered here and there and it's been kind of discussed on, on one or two podcasts and I've seen a few articles about it but this was a real good opportunity to get really into detail about what it actually is what it actually means and how you actually do it and the value of it which is a fantastic conversation we also discussed sound design i'm so glad that there is someone else out there who is banging the drum for sound design that is not a sound designer we've had loads of sound designers on the podcast and we're all banging the drum uh, to, to a kind of evangelize for the use of sound design in voice experiences so it's nice to see uh, to see claire banging that drum as well and we, we get into some examples of of where sound design can be used where it is being used and some examples of applications that are using it well as well uh, shout out to read speaker for sponsoring this episode and all the episodes of VOX World throughout February. If you're looking for a custom text-to-speech voice, then ReadSpeaker are the place to go for that. They've been doing this for 20-odd years. They brought text-to-speech to the browser for the very first time over 20 years ago. There is very, very few companies more experienced than ReadSpeaker. They make text-to-speech, customized text-to-speech uh, applications for brands all over the world. You know, some of the, some of the world's biggest brands as well and, and you can use this stuff wherever you need it it doesn't have to be in a voice application although you can use it in a voice application but you can also use it in your IVR systems and phone lines on your websites in public announcement systems and wherever you need a voice a customised voice a branded voice check out ReadSpeaker because they have what you need it's readspeaker.com the link is in the show notes and it's also on the website if you're listening online thank you ReadSpeaker for sponsoring VUX World now without further ado ladies and gentlemen this is Claire Mitchell of VaynerMedia on VUX World VUX World VUX World VUX World VUX World Branding with the big faces I love listening to it we have a great show. We've got Claire Mitchell from VaynerMedia. Uh, welcome, Claire. Hi there. Great to be here. Cool. And then, yeah, so Claire, you're at VaynerMedia. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you do and, and what VaynerMedia is doing in voice as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm director on our Vayner Smart team at VaynerMedia, which is our emerging technologies group. Um, VaynerMedia itself is a full service media advertising production company. And our team is sort of tasked with looking at new platforms for storytelling, communication, and really interactivity between um, brands and on the audience. And you were mentioning that you actually came into voice from a background in IoT, is that right? Yeah, I actually have a very windy path. Um, studied philosophy, so I always joke around that I'm lucky to be employed. Um, but started my career in uh, creative development for a visual effects studio. So um, 3D uh, integrated into live action, um, really photo real stuff. And after about four years of that, went back to grad school for interaction design and, um, and studied human computer interaction, uh, a little bit of programming. 
And um, out of that, ended up working for an engineering studio and then uh, an IoT software platform for industrial applications. And my role there was uh, lead product designer, so designing the interface for building these IoT applications. But I also built a ton of prototypes and made videos, instructional videos, to show our users how to use the software. Um, so then that uh, ultimately led me to uh, VaynerMedia. I met Patrick Gibbons, who leads our group, and uh, was really excited about what he was building here. Um, so now I get to work with our creative teams, um, not only designing and building for voice, but really creating prototypes that illustrate any concepts that folks might have. So is is there um, a distinction at VaynerMedia between those different elements or is it kind of like one division if you like that handles all of these emerging uh, technology uh, projects well the vayner smart group is focused on emerging technology but we really work um, pretty integrated with all of our teams here um, any anyone who's got appetite for innovation we get to sort of partner up with and form these little interdisciplinary groups from project to project what was it about, uh, were you intending to uh, kind of go into the voice uh, space? Was that one of the things or is that something that you just happened to have come into given the role that, you, that you're in currently? Well, it's interesting. I guess in grad school, a big fo- focus was new user interfaces. And so voice itself wasn't um, as important to me as just all of the different inputs that you could possibly use from from voice to um, gesture to, uh, you know, obviously physical objects that could be turned into um, capacitive sensors. Um, So that led me into the IoT space where I was dealing a lot with um, bringing the digital and the physical together. And so voice has been a natural extension of that work. Um, But even now, I, uh, I don't think of my... Uh, job as focused on voice as much as um, interactive experiences that deal with a lot of different inputs. And you mentioned that within VaynerMedia, you're focused on storytelling, interactive experiences. What are some of the projects that you've worked on, some of the things that you've built? Um, a lot of uh, a lot of voice stuff, obviously, uh, which is a huge focus for our team and for um, the company as a whole. Um, because it's such a such an amazing channel and uh, gaining popularity every day, um, but also a lot of augmented reality uh, stuff, prototypes, and uh, things where you're launching a digital experience from a static asset like a, a packaging for a CPG company. Um, those sorts of things, for the most part. So I'm always interested in in when we have uh, agencies, big and small, to try and understand a little bit about kind of how much time and effort is taken up with voice-based projects, because I think it gives a good indication about the health of the industry. And for people listening to this, many people are either in the industry or trying to break into the industry. So it's always a good kind of like, almost like a benchmark to where uh, what's the state of play of things? Um, and I was surprised when uh, when we had Rain Agency on uh, earlier in the year. In fact, it might have even been last year, to be honest. And we asked how much, you know, what proportion of work is spent on voice? And they said, 100%. We're now a voice agency, basically. Um, so I'm curious, with a big company like Vayner, and maybe it's not something you can answer for the whole of the entire company, but for your 
kind of side of things for your for your kind of department, your division. What do you think the proportion of voice work versus other work is, do you think? For our team specifically, I would say um, probably about 70, 75% of our efforts are spent on voice. Um, the other 25 may be things like augmented reality or um, launching a digital experience from a static asset like a, a piece of packaging or an out-of-home ad or those kinds of things. Um, but within that 75%, we're doing um, both production work, design work, uh, and a lot of education and consulting, whether it's consulting um, about the uh, where we see voice heading in terms of the design and the experiences, um, or just state of the space generally. Um, yeah, so that that's sort of how it breaks down. And have you seen that change uh, from the time that you joined to, to now? Are you working on voice more? Are you working on voice less? Or does it stay pretty constant? That's a good question. Um, I think in our team, at, our team has always been pretty heavily focused on voice because it is the emerging channel of our day right now. Um, however, I think uh, over the two, year, two and a half years that I've been here, there has been some shifting between um, production and education uh, in both directions. So a lot of heavy production work um, in 2017, uh, early 2018, then a bit of more education side of things where people are really trying to understand what is the state of the space, where is this heading, um, and uh, now getting into a, a bunch of production work as well. And I'm really interested as well in the fact that you you mentioned that part of what you're doing is is storytelling. And one of the things that I always say that I really want to see is I want to feel something through a voice, whether it's uh, you know a heavy emotion or it's it's uh, excitement or or things like that. And storytelling has a big opportunity to do that. So, do you feel like voice is a channel that can be? you know, it can drive emotion, can drive those types of feelings that you might get from a film or, or podcast or radio or things like that? Absolutely. I don't think that we're there quite yet. Um, I mean, I think that there are some examples of, um, of things going in that direction. Um, but sound design on these channels is so early and is often pretty unconsidered. Um, as developers, designers, uh, even audience, our expectations are, um, are, are very early. And so particularly for developers and designers, we're just getting on the platform and figuring out what we can do, getting acquainted with this new um, technology. I think over the next year to three years, we'll see a lot more robust um, uh, interaction design uh, that incorporates sound. So audio feedback instead of verbal, which is a lot less cumbersome, um, will ultimately feel more natural, but also robust sound design of worlds for um, games or more narrative experiences. Um, there are a couple of examples of uh, like the Westworld skill did some more robust sound design. Um, but I think that there's a ways to go. Interesting that I think that's that's one of uh, one of my kind of 
passions is 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 in the sort of sound design space and we, we've spoke about sound design uh in the past with like joel beckerman and eric c and, and stuff like that and uh it's interesting going back to the kind of the concept of emotion do you think and when you said it's not quite there yet do you is it the advancement of sound design practices that would bring about that or is it the advancement or the kind of uh the mat- maturing of storytelling on the medium I think it partially might be the investment that's required. Um, Often when we're trying to um, prove out the the reason for for doing this stuff, it's all about creating an MVP and and learning from it and getting on the platform. And I think that that's what's happened over the past um, year or two. Folks are just trying to get on the platform. but there's a, an investment that needs to be made in order to bring on the sound design talent and um, invest in those production uh, capabilities that I think it just comes as um, less prioritized than uh, the you know basic interactions. You, you mentioned that's a lot of POCs and I think everyone in the industry probably has seen the same thing, but for Vayner specifically, is it really these companies coming to you and saying, Hey, we want to try out voice. We want to see what this can do for our company. Or is it you going to them and saying, Hey, for your company, we have this idea of how this new emerging technology, specifically voice can contribute to your goals. And we want to give that a try. I think it's really both. Um, Probably more so the, ladder uh, of folks coming and being interested in this new space and trying to understand where they fit within it. Um, But we also have proactive ideas and see where we can provide value. So it sort of goes both directions. What's your sort of, um, I've kind of posted something uh, on LinkedIn and it was, it's even on YouTube actually as well, uh, kind of like a whiteboard session where I was looking at the the uh, the concept of agile delivery. So creating an MVP, launching it, getting on the platform to use your words and then, you know, iterating from there versus a more kind of waterfall approach, which is rather than launching the MVP, do the iterating and get something fully ready and polished, things like sound design and all that kind of stuff, until you have something that is, you know, up there with your likes of Westworld and then going with that. How are you sort of advising clients or does it depend? Are you are you trying to push people to get on the platform, learn about it, get an MVP up there? Or are you trying to encourage people to uh, take a little bit more time, consider things a bit more and go try and go to market with something that's a little bit more kind of like production or like higher that's quality? That's a really good question. And I think um, we've, we probably operate in both ways, depending on the client, depending on the type of application. Um, obviously, if there's uh, if there's if there's sort of a, a low risk of launching something and learning from it, or if there's um, a high return on launching something and getting it into the hands of real users and getting the feedback that you get in Amazon reviews and um, those sorts of places, uh, we'll sort of make, weigh that cost benefit analysis. Um, but we also do a lot of building of prototypes or building of an actual working application 
and uh, doing some user testing and desirability testing to see, is this a feature that people want? Should it work this way? Um, how might people uh, actually ask for these different features within the experience? Um, and so it really all depends on what what we're sort of going after. But I think it's a, it's a good point that um, in certain cases, there may be a reason to delay a launch and make the full investment into something more robust. And changing topics a bit, the reason why we originally reached out to you, the reason why we said we, we have to have Claire on VUX World is you had given this great presentation at Voice Summit back in the summer about situational design. Can you tell us more about what that is, what situational design is? Yeah, um, so situational design is really an approach to designing for voice that accounts for the uh, user's context. And it ultimately comes down to setting up expectations for a user, um, what they could reasonably expect to do within this experience, and then accounting for all of the things that they might actually try to do. Um, right now, we sort of require that our audience conforms to the limited uh, sort of tree-like structure of our experiences and um, to talk a little bit more like a computer in ones and zeros, um, often asking yes or no questions or presenting a menu of uh, three options and asking them to repeat back those options based on what they want to do. And this is a way to try and account for more conversational, fluid uh, ways of, of designing an experience. So, so what, what would an example be of situational design in practice and, and like how would that differ from the tree-based design that, you, that you'd mentioned? Have you got kind of any, any examples or case studies of, of how it would work in practice? Yeah, so in a tree-like structure, um, you would have the application, um, say, a menu of two or three different options and uh, account for the user to say which of those three options they'd like to proceed with. And they would go on that um, linear piece of the tree structure. In situational design, we make anything that is possible within the skill accessible from anywhere within the skill. So it's not about answering um, that one question in the moment, but allowing the user to tell you what they want to do and taking them there. So Paul Katzimir and I um, gave a talk earlier this year at Voice Summit and used the example of um, a, a plant uh, skill to illustrate. It was called the Plant Whisper. Um, and so in the Plant Whisper example, if the Plant Whisper uh, is invoked and asks it says i can recommend plants which or provide care instructions uh what can i help you with the user might say something like um i want to know about a monstera plant the skill might respond a monstera plant um likes indirect light are you interested in hearing more about this plant and if the user um says i'll buy one we can accommodate for that and allow the user to go into a purchase flow rather than forcing them to uh, answer the question that was asked. And so rather than designing in a tree, we actually create a ton of different situations uh, that account for all of the possibilities within the skill. And the user can sort of hopscotch between those based on what they tell us. So 
so you had and in that presentation you had kind of cards didn't you like templated kind of cards that does each card represent a situation is that how it how it works in terms of if you were going to go about actually designing it you know and and putting something down that is a representation of it can you talk us through those those templates and maybe we can we can share the video that you have to, uh, and 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 stuff like that but can you could you mind just talking us through what this template looks like and how you would go about actually documenting or designing this kind of uh, yeah I'll sort of start with the high level architecture um, that we begin with and this sort of comes from you know there's this idea of uh, tell me if this gets too. There's this idea of uh, generalized artificial intelligence. We're pretty far away from that. What artificial intelligence is great at is doing very um, domain specific tasks that are repetitive. And, um, and what our voice assistants are great at is delegating tasks, delegating our tasks and routing them to the right uh, specific um, uh uh, capability. So within our skill designs, we can do the same thing. We have a skill that's called the plant whisper. And within that skill, we have several domains of expertise. Our domains of expertise are really good at doing um, these very specific things. So in the plant whisper, we might have one domain of expertise that's all about giving you plant information. Um, another domain of expertise might be all about helping you buy a plant. It's the purchase flow. And so within each of those domains of expertise, we now have our situations. And each situation is basically a set of, um, a set of characteristics about the context. And that could include anything that the designer wants to account for um, from, are they on a screen device or are they not on a screen device? Um, have they told us uh, that they want to make a purchase or are they just exploring? Have they told us what characteristics that they want in a plant? Um, all of these things can be accounted for in this one situation. And we'll end up having, you know, many, many situations, depending on the depth of the skill, it could be 50 or 100. And that sounds very tedious, and it is actually quite tedious. But we're offloading that tedium from the user and making the experience better for them by taking it on ourselves. Um, another thing, another dimension that you might want to add to your situations and probably will need to moving forward is um, other types of devices. Are they on the go? Are they in the car? Um, and these are things that we as designers should account for uh, in order to give the best experience and the best response. I can see that being really useful for users who who know what they want to do or know what's possible. But what about those people who perhaps don't know what the skill can do? For example, with uh, the plant whisper that they don't know that they can buy, they don't know exactly what's possible within the skill. What yeah. can you do for those users? Well, the first piece is setting up expectations. So um, it comes through in perhaps a welcome message. Um, and in this case, we can treat it just like you would uh, a retail space. What happens when somebody enters your plant store? Well, you welcome them and say, I can help you find um, the perfect plant or, you know, I can help you make a purchase. Um, what is it that you want to do? Um, but giving them uh, that sort of context so that they know what they can reasonably expect to do. I can probably ask about 
um, what kinds of uh, environments are, are right for a plant or what uh, plants are right for um, an apartment with no windows. Because I've been given that context that that's probably a reasonable thing to ask for. Um, but there are places where um, in, for instance, designing a game, games are inherently rule-based. And so a user really needs to know exactly what they need to do next. Um, but in a conversation, we don't need to be told from the person that we're speaking to at every turn what we need to say next in order to continue the conversation. And that's sort of where we're trying to get to in the situational design. What's the... Um... I can I can get how situational design is um, can be used for something if if like let's say in your example someone's going from you know browsing and then rather than kind of getting through the funnel of browsing like going from you know like indoor plants down to like indoor plants that are either blue or pink and then ones that only grow to like three foot and filtering them down to a specific plant that's right for them I can understand how during that process someone might just say okay yeah we'll buy that or actually tell me about the begonias or whatever and, and then like you know so shifting away from one kind of dimension to another um there there are are there not places where you still might need the tree-based structure for example if someone if someone does say buy it then presumably there needs to be some degree of structure in order to get them through, which is essentially a tree, a purchase funnel. Um, is the philosophy that it's situational design across the board, or are you saying that it's broadly speaking the architecture is situational, but actually when you get to a, an intent you've identified, then you revert back to the kind of tree thing? In some ways, it's a different way of documenting the design and to allow for the flexibility of allowing users to jump from one place to another. Um, but there are areas that could definitely be documented in um, a tree structure. Um, it's just not as, as rigid. Mm. So, so it's a design philosophy rather than an approach to actually how you would build it. Like, is, is there is there a difference in? And I don't know whether whether Dustin might have might kind of know this, but is there a difference in the way that you would actually technically build something out, or is it is it more a way of actually just designing and imagining what the interaction is? That's a good question. I I should. I'm currently working with our developers basically to figure out the best way to document all aspects of the design to make their job easier. And I haven't asked if this has changed the way that they structure their code. Um, so I, I'm not sure about that. Dustin, do you have any sense of? I would imagine that there would be some difference because if we think about it in a very rigid structure with guardrails, you know where someone's coming from, you know where someone's going to. And so you don't need to perhaps keep as much information about them throughout the, the life flow or consider what's going on. So Kane, for example, you know, you and I are working on a project right now where uh, we talked about uh, it's all about food ordering. And we said, okay, well, do we, how often do we tell someone here's all the things that you ordered and here's the total of your order and here's the delivery fee because what we were doing was we were telling them twice, I think three times, 
because yeah. they could jump around and we didn't necessarily know, okay, had they heard that before, had they heard it, or had they, had they had not heard that. And so we had to keep a track of even, hey, have you heard, uh, kept track, of, or rather, have you heard the total before? We right. have to keep track of that and, and not tell you again. Absolutely. And th- that kind of information is accounted for in this way of, of documenting design. And from a user perspective, it probably should be, um, although it is quite tedious on the designer and I'm sure the developer as well. Um, but, but I think ultimately that's where we want our, our conversational assistance to be headed um, to really know whether we've heard something before or not. Um, I think the purchase flow is a really interesting one. Um, and it's, I think, the most fun to design in this manner because it's it really is just about keeping track of what have they told us and what have they not told us yet to fulfill this request. What I really like about this as you're describing it is it ultimately seems about showing respect to the user, right? Yeah. You're respecting the user because you're saying you're not an automaton. Exactly. Uh, go where you want, but also it's showing a lot of respect because you you talked about the tedium and the extra work on the designer and the developer. One of my favorite uh, talks that I've ever, or it was an art, uh, article representation of this talk, was talking about how when you're creating something, your time is, or rather the consumer's time is multiplied. So if we create a voice experience that takes off and a million people use it and they have to add 30 extra seconds of time to to get through that process that's 30 seconds times a million Mm. but if we think about okay well we're going to take three extra days to to build the situational design in it's just being a good citizen to say okay well i'll take that three days versus 30 seconds times a million uh, and so that's what I really like about this is you're showing respect. You're saying your time is valuable. You, you millions of people who are using my skill or uh, you're valuable. You know what you want to do and we're going to build for that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's really exciting because we are um, collectively, all the folks in the voice community are setting the precedent for um, what this technology will look like, what the experiences will sound like. Um, in the, you know, for the next many years. And so as much as we can sort of encourage that uh, they are designed more to conform to the way that humans speak versus expecting humans to conform to the way that they current, the voice assistants currently speak is probably a good idea. Um, there's a whole generation of folks that are growing up with these uh, as kids and are really learning to speak to the Alexa and the Google Assistant and the other platforms in the way that um, is sort of rigid at the moment. Mm. It's uh, there was a story this week. Apparently, it was uh, some kid's first word in December. Alexa, uh, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure it's going to be my, my kid's first word. I keep kind of uh, yeah. keep getting him to try, and he does now. He knows what the smart speaker is, and he'll bend down. He'll go ah. Like that, and he'll shout. Yeah. He'll look at it. He'll bend towards it, and he'll shout. So he knows that it, he knows what it does, and he's only like sixteen month old. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. So, but what you were saying there, Dustin, in terms of like the the net effect of not spending 
longer to to do the hard work and that's ultimately always kind of what the case is even when building websites to build a really simple website that works really intuitively for the user usually is it takes far longer to build because you need to manage all the complexity behind the scenes and and the net benefit of uh, putting the effort in up front to save 30 seconds every time you know accumulatively it's a better experience but also it's like I'm, I'm kind of a fan of trying to remove any element of friction or any barrier because it's I, I kind of liken it to a bit like if you fill in like a website form or something like that and it's asking you questions that you shouldn't you don't really need to be answering For, on the first page that's fine on the second page it's like mm, uh, what's the point in this on the third page then there's a little bit of functionality that doesn't quite work by the time you get to the end of it you're like ah oh, you know what it's just a nightmare it's the same kind of thing in voice isn't it where like if there's a little bit of friction if, if things are taking longer than they need to if the dialogue's done quite sound right if you can't get from one one situation to another then you know the, the one incident in isolation doesn't seem like that much of a problem certainly to a project team when you're reviewing something but those issues accumulated over the course of an interaction accumulated over a span of interactions over time end up have, having a detriment to the whole experience mm-hmm. not only the experience but the culture around these mm. things 100 so the, so the the Back to the kind of template, to, to document a situation, what kind of things are you looking for? What what kind of considerations? You mentioned device type and stuff like that. Is is there anything else that you would kind of document to in, in order to design a situation? Um, so the primary things are what we know from the user and what we don't in order to fulfill some sort of request, uh, whether that's purchase or recommendation or um, whatever it might be. Um, and then uh, the device type, um, s- multimodal screen versus headless is sort of the first place that we've um, incorporated. But then um, the context of the user could be um, the location geographically if we wanted that dimension, or it could be, are they on the go? Um, are they wearing headphones? Can we reasonably expect that they are sort of multitasking? Um, driving is obviously a huge one. Uh, but it really can be any variable that's appropriate for your skill. Um, have they been here before? Um, that's one that I think we're often used to accounting for, but there are so many more. Hmm. And is there any downsides to situational design? Um, or I challenges? Think I'd say... Challenges are um, probably not necessarily specific to situational design because they probably go from in no matter how you're communicating a design, but it's really about what is the best way that I can communicate this design to all of the stakeholders. Um, I think we've found that situational design is a very clear way to communicate to um, our non-technical stakeholders because you can actually have a conversation, um, a mock conversation and jump from situation to situation to see if you've accommodated for all of the things that uh, a user might ask for in user testing and that sort of thing. On the developer side, we've found it's been a more robust way of capturing um, some of the specifications that we wanna capture. Um, But some people are very used to seeing a tree flow 
type structure. And so that familiarity can be more convenient sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's interesting at Voice Summit uh, was catching up with Paul Kutzinger not long after your presentation about situational design. And some developer came up to him and said, okay, situational design sounds great, but how do we work it into uh, flow charts? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it seems like people are, are definitely married to, to that way of representing the voice experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it really could fit in a flowchart. It would be just a very heavily annotated flowchart. <laughs> like a lot of caveats. With a lot of buts. Yeah, exactly. So to wrap up on the situational design, and I know that we are we're getting uh, on a little bit for time, but there is there's five principles. You've already mentioned one, which is to be adaptive. Can we flick through the five principles and you can give us a, a, a summary of, of each one? Sure. Um, so yeah, being adaptable is just allowing the conversation to shift based on a user's new request, even if it's not a direct answer to what was just asked previously, um, or to have, you know, a fallback if they ask for something that you can't count for. Um, being personal is about using memory and storing certain information. So if they've been there before, um, welcoming them back. And that's something that we see pretty typically, um, but it can also remember that they, in the plant case, um, that they wanted plants that are pet friendly. And that's probably something that they're always going to want. Um, so assuming after that first time that they do want something plant friendly could be a case. Uh, being available, this is really about having the ability to uh, have more deep invocations like should they have to go through the entire flow of the scale to make a purchase or can they just go directly to the purchase flow if they know what they want? Um, being relatable is coming up with the right synonyms. So how do people actually talk? Do they have to uh, say um, things in perfect uh, English or is there a slang if there's sort of um, an audience that we're speaking to that might uh, use uh, more casual words? And then um, being multimodal is just accounting for the different devices. If they're uh, potentially not looking at a screen, maybe they need a little bit more description. If they're looking at a screen, maybe they don't need so much of that verbal feedback. And for on the go, um, we'll start to think about um, how sound can be used to communicate things rather than verbal responses. Something Siri should do because the AirPods, I haven't got the brand new AirPods. I've got the ones before it. And whenever you ask for Siri, it doesn't make a noise at all. You've just got to guess whether or not it's activated and then speak and see what happens. Yeah, we need that feedback. Yeah. I think that is actually such an interesting area, even communicating um, data. We have data visualizations. Why not have an audio version of that for certain applications? I know that Bloomberg is experimenting with um, uh, sonification of um, stocks. Is it going down or is it going up? And you can easily imagine how that could be translated into sound. And that's something that we're super, super excited about thinking um, through. When is it appropriate to use um, sound design to communicate things rather than verbal? So have you, have you got any examples then of, of skills that are using sound well, skills that, with good sound design? Some of the first that come to mind are 
Westworld. Um, that experience was incredibly immersive. Um, Chompers is also a great one. They update their content on a continuous basis uh, with great sound design and writing every single time. And then Wait, Wait Quiz, which we were fortunate enough to work with um, NPR on, um, has great writing, is highly interactive. And um, although it's a constrained flow because it's a game, there are open-ended questions that allow users to feel more engaged. And a lot of attention is paid to the sound design and the feedback of correct answers and those kinds of things. It was also just recognized by Amazon as one of the top 10 skills of 2019, which is really exciting. Um, but the common thing about all of these is that uh, they come from brands or organizations that are already quite experienced and invested in quality audio and visual production in some cases. But I think the success of these experiences can potentially be an indicator for other brands uh, and, and other folks that great sound design and investment in great writing is worthwhile and shouldn't just be considered an afterthought, but part of the design process in the beginning. And the Wait Wait quiz, was that kind of like end-to-end -end, uh, designed in terms of, you know, using recorded um, voice actors and things like that? Or, or is it more kind of like using text-to-speech with some SSML and then some sound effects and stuff like that? It's all recorded VO um, and it's the hosts of the um, the actual radio quiz show that are, are updating content every week. Uh, and they're just so fun and funny. And um, so the content is really rich. And do you think that from for companies that are not kind of like traditionally kind of like skilled in audio production or resourced for audio production, obviously M NPR, that's essentially its whole business is, is audio production. Uh, and then Westworld, you know, that was from HBO. So they're, they're well and truly, versed. I think Zandra are even involved in that as well. And they're quite like, uh, you know, quite heavy on the kind of audio production in terms of their experience and stuff. So do you think it's a requirement for uh, companies to have that kind of pedigree or will they need to bring in that kind of pedigree or is this something that you think that people can kind of learn and, and improve at? I think there are probably a couple of ways of going about it. I don't think that every company is going to need to um, create their own internal audio production company right away. There are probably baby steps, but the, the point is really that consideration for audio content and sound design is just something that can be considered upfront and not something that is um, applied at the end, which is sort of how uh, it sometimes can be set up. But coming back to what will sort of make better voice experiences moving forward, um, I think it is just that consideration for sound design, not only in immersive storytelling experiences, but considered audio cues, and that can just be a little sound effect. And you can look at um, free libraries of sounds or, or sort of low effort ways of introducing some of those pieces, um, but finding a balance between the verbal and nonverbal feedback that orients the user in whatever the skill is, whether it's an entertainment or um, something that's more utilitarian. And then the other piece is just more contextual, flex flexible structures with sort of modular interactions that allow users to drive the conversation rather than conforming to these narrow sets of 
predefined paths that we sometimes see um, and accounting for the context of the user. And that's what situational design is trying to get to. Mm. There was an interesting study by um, Audio UX. Um, we've had them on the podcast. We've had Eric C on the podcast. That, that this was before the study, though. And he was referencing the concept of audio as an afterthought or the five A's or four A's, I think he called it. Uh, and in their study, they found that the use of premium sounding earcons that are consistent throughout the skill so for example if you have a sound that is a success noise and then a sound that is like a failure sound having those easily recognizable as part of the same family of sounds so to speak can improve the engagement of uh, skills and also it increases the perceived premium kind of quality by x percent i can't it was 30 odd percent or something like that so they've kind of like proven that a holistic sounding uh suite of earcons does measurably improve the user experience yeah absolutely i'm i'm familiar with some of their work and i really love the way that they're um thinking about this side of things um because i think if done right it absolutely can make an impact. And from the user's perspective, it's almost so subtle that it, if it's successful, it disappears and just conveys this bit of information that helps you along the way. Mm. It reminds me a little bit. In fact, I think it was probably this time last year, I think we had uh, Rebecca Evanhoe on the show. She was at Mobiquity at the time and then moved to Amazon where she's at now. And, um, she was talking about, I can't remember the specific part of the conversation, but we ended up at the point of, of kind of comparing voice to uh, other kind of modalities and, and the kind of age old saying of like good design goes unnoticed. So it's like, you know, all of the hard work that goes into making something really, really seamless, it doesn't need to be an obvious good kind of design. It just needs to work and do its job. And that's almost where kind of sound design fits as well. You don't, you don't want it to be like blatantly obvious. You just want it to be natural sound and and make the whole thing a better holistic kind of experience. Totally. And, you know, I think one of the challenges for designers, and I don't have an answer for this in solving this, but um, when we design for visual interfaces, we work with the fundamental element of a pixel. Um, for video uh, editors, maybe they're working with storyboards or working with video directly, but it's the frame that's sort of the fundamental element. And when we're designing for audio first experiences through voice user interfaces, um, we're starting with not an audio unit, but uh, a script or something that's a little bit disconnected. So there's an inherent disconnect, I think, um, or a need to apply sound later. So I think that there's something to be solved there. Um, how can we work uh, at the beginning with audio considerations uh, rather than applying that later? Mm. There's this. If it, if it, if people haven't checked this out, then you should check it out. It's the podcast we did with Joel Beckerman of Man Made Music, and one of the things that he said that stuck with me ever since. It kind of taps into what you're saying there, which is around. He talks about scoring experiences from moment to moment to moment as in like in a passage of time every single second matters and it's kind of like how are you telling and conveying either a story or an emotion or whatever it is that you're trying to get across in every single 
second so it's almost as if like I don't know if you, whether you'd agree with this analogy but your analogy of looking at designers fundamentally working with pixels and videographers fundamentally working with frames it's almost as if conversation designers or sound designers when you're creating voice experiences that the, the fundamental kind of like part of it is almost like the, the passage of time almost I think that's that's beautiful and poetic I yeah it makes me want to take a couple of classes in um, sound theory <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then changing topics a bit, Claire, you've got a pretty unique background and you've got an interesting vantage point as well to to examine and think about what's happening in the near future. So in your mind, with voice and with conversational, what should we be expecting over the let's say next year? This is a, a good time to to make our predictions. Over the next year, yeah, I'll have to double down on sound design. I've mentioned it a couple of times before, but I think more robust sound design and uh, creating more immersive experiences, um, but also uh, thinking about um, interaction designers and sound designers coming together in one sort of body to, to um, make our experiences more interesting and more enjoyable. And then the other area, I don't probably, I don't think this is over the next year, but over the next five years, I think we might stop um, speaking about uh, voice applications as specific to voice because we'll have all of these different ways of interacting with um, our experiences and it might be using our voice uh, if we're multitasking or need to be hands-free, but we'll be able to use that same application um, by typing in our phone uh, or using a gesture perhaps. And so I think all of these things will start of start to be considered um, and we'll have uh, uh, multiple ways of interacting with our digital information. Do you think that devices are converging? I don't know if I've actually published this, but I've got it in my, if I haven't already, it's in my, my uh, pad to make a, a, some kind of article about it. But I was thinking the other day that essentially once you've got voice as an interface there's there's no difference between the echo show in your kitchen the samsung tv in your front room and the android phone in your hand they've all got screens they'll all enable you to interact with them in whichever way is most convenient you know sometimes you'll have headphones in sometimes you'll you'll have a headless device but ultimately the kind of things that you will be able to do on these devices is probably kind of similar over time. So is that, is that a fair assumption that devices are just converging into, into, into this? Ultimately it's about ambient computing and what form that takes physically, um, I think is, is yet to be seen. It might just be that we always have our headphones on and we can interact with any device or environment based on, um, our phone and our headphones, uh, or it could be, you know, many other ways that uh, this comes together, but it's ambient computing where we can just interact with what we need to at, at, uh, without much, you know, with a lot of ease. I think it's an, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure. And uh, Claire, I think it's interesting that you bring up ambient computing because I remember in the early 2000s that there was that first promise of it. Uh, it all seemed very light-based for some reason. There were all those devices that would light up different colors based on 
stocks going up or down or, or the weather being hotter or colder. Uh, but certainly with the price of computing decreasing and certainly internet increasing and uh, 5G around the corner, if that's, uh, if that's actually going to be a game changer or not, you open up the possibility of so many more things being connected and being able to, to get that information as well. It's going to be interesting to see whether it happens or not. Uh, it's definitely going to be interesting to see. Yeah, I wish that I had the foresight of uh, seeing our time right now in retrospect because um, I've been actually doing a lot of uh, reading about sound uh, design and um, the origins of audio recording. And it's so interesting at the time when audio recording technologies were um, coming about, uh, there was a lot of uh, preservation technology and pres preservation discussion, including embalming, which was happening at around the same time, and uh, preservation of, of canned foods. Um, and so folks were talking about um, recording voices as uh, uh, preserving the voices of the dead, because for the first time, we would be able to hear people's voices after they were gone. And it's, it sounds so strange and it's such a weird uh, thing to look at how the culture around audio recording was at that moment. So I'm trying to think about like, how will we see today in uh, 20, 50 years and the conversations that we're having about this new technology and how it impacts um, the culture. So mm. it's interesting because it's almost like similar conversations seemingly then are happening because, you know, it's like, when we had James Vlahos on the podcast, he created a... Did he call it Dadbot, Dustin? Could you remember? I don't remember, but they've he's launched a company since then to actually do this for other people as well. Really? Yeah. Wow, there you go then. So essentially, if you haven't seen it, Claire, and, and everyone listening... Um, check out the James Vlahos episode for more details. But essentially, what he did is he interviewed his dad before he died and asked him all the kinds of questions that he would want to uh, to know and then essentially put all of the answers into a bot so that then after that he can have a conversation with his dad once he'd passed wow. on. Yeah. So now That's he's doing Yeah, so he's doing that that his company does that does it for other people. Yeah, yeah, he's launched it recently. Uh, seems to be doing pretty well with it. That's fascinating. Wow. So that seems, you know, they were having the same conversations with the birth of audio recording, but now we can have it interactive. Very, very interesting. Full circle. <laughs> Claire, well, I think this is uh, extremely fascinating. Kane, any other questions on your end? I don't think so. I just, yeah. Uh, what books, are, yeah, one more question. What books are you reading on, on, uh, on sound design and the origins of sound? Well, the one that I was just mentioning is... Um, the chapter is called A Resonant Tomb. It's uh, by, it's in a book called The Audible Pass. Don't, I can't remember the author's name. I'll have to send it to you after. Um, but it's a really, really interesting, very, very, very theoretical um, and philosophical look at, at sound. It's pretty awesome. Sounds right up my straza. I'll put the link, I'll find that. I'll put the link in the show notes as well if anyone, is, uh, if anyone wants to check it out. Awesome. Yeah, and, and finally, one thing that's always interesting to hear is what do you want to see in, in regards to voice? Uh, people who are listening who can build things based on situational design, what would you like to see? What would you like to use on voice in the next year? Um, 
I think I'd just really like to see some really interesting experimentation. Um, we have sort of, there's sort of some parallels with uh, the early days of web design and things are a little bit clunky. Um, and now there's some really, really incredible uh, from WebGL, 3JS, all of this really, really interesting, um, robust, immersive experiences that you can have. Uh, and I think we need to push what's possible on our voice platforms a little bit more. Um, and that just requires getting acquainted with it, which we're sort of in the stages of doing now. And now I think it's time for more experimentation with um, pushing the creativity of these platforms. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. One of the things that I loved being on the early internet is it was really weird. Yeah. <laughs> like so much of it was just really weird. And I'd love to see uh, some of that coming to voice as well. Totally. Yeah, perfect. So Claire, where can people find you? Where can people find Vayner? Where can people find out more information about situational design? Yeah, best place is uh, LinkedIn is always a good one. So uh, feel free to reach out. And um, situational design, there's a lot of great documentation um, from the Amazon Alexa team. Uh, and, you know, I'm always happy to, to chat with folks as well. Great. Well, thank you so much, Claire, for appearing. This has really just been fantastic. Awesome. Thanks, guys. That was Claire Mitchell of Vayner Media. Thank you, Claire, for joining us. That was a that was a really good conversation. That the situational design side of things, I'm really interested in because I do know from speaking to another few people that it's actually pretty difficult to, to create to, to develop stuff using situational design. But the principles are absolutely sound, allowing a user to get to any part of the skill, any part of the application, any functionality or features from wherever they are at any point in time makes total sense. I do think that tree-based structures are still relevant for certain parts. For example, when you get into a purchase funnel, you probably want to guide a user through that rather than let them say anything they want and hop out of that. So I think that, that tree-based structures probably work well for certain domains, but the principle of allowing a user to say anything at any time to access various bits of functionality depending on what their needs are makes absolute sense. And I'm glad, so glad, that somebody else shares the same passion as I do for sound design. I still really do think I'm going to keep banging the drum for sound design because I do think it's one of the most underutilised yet one of the most important parts of any voice application is sound design because it's an audio medium it's audio first and there is so much that you can achieve with doing sound sound design so thank you claire for banging the drum as well and some great examples of some skills uh, that use good sound design as well which you should totally check out so thank you claire that was an absolute pleasure thank you dustin as always and as always ladies and gentlemen thank you all for listening and until next time see you later